Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning and beauty, and we welcome you this morning. We want to extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're so glad you're here. We come from a long tradition which believes that there is a spark of the divine within each of us. So I invite you now to recognize the holy among us by turning to your left and your right and greeting those that are around you. It's our Unitarian Universalist tradition to light a chalice together at the beginning of our service, so I invite you to read with me the words for lighting our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. As we enter into worship, put away the pressures of the world that ask us to perform, to take up masks, to put on brave fronts. Silence the voices that ask you to be perfect. This is a community of compassion and welcoming. You do not have to do anything to earn the love contained within these walls. You do not have to be braver, smarter, stronger, better than you are in this moment to belong here with us. You only have to bring the gift of your body, no matter how able. Your seeking mind, no matter how busy. Your animal heart, no matter how broken. Bring all that you are and all that you love to this hour together. Let us worship together. Unitarian Universalists draw from a number of wisdom sources, including all of the world's major faith traditions. We draw from humanist teachings, earth-centered teachings, the belief that we are connected to an interconnected web of all existence. We draw from the words and deeds of prophetic women and men. And some of us draw from that indescribable transparency experience of wonder and awe that we can't explain but that sustains us nonetheless. And here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, one of the things that motivates us and brings us together as a community is our mission. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday morning. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. No vulnerability, no empathy. In a culture where people are afraid to be vulnerable, you can't have empathy. If you share something with me, something that's difficult, in order for me to be truly empathetic, I have to step into what you're feeling, and that's vulnerable. So there can be no empathy without vulnerability. You can't even access empathy if you're not willing to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose, or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. Now is the time in our service where we pause to breathe together. Breathing in and breathing out, we sense the presence and the life breath of those around us, 
follow our breath deep down into that more authentic place and breathing with each other we enter into a moment of silence some of us pray some meditate some use the silence to contemplate breathing together let us enter the silence together. Here's a quote that I really love and that I try to carry with me in my daily life. Vulnerability is the core of all emotions and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. To believe vulnerability is weakness is to believe that feeling is weakness. To foreclose on our emotional life out of a fear that the cost will be too high is to walk away from the very thing that gives purpose and meaning to living. That and the reading we heard earlier are from a series of online lectures by Dr. Brene Brown, a well-known researcher, author, and speaker from the University of Houston School of Social Work. She defines vulnerability as exposure, uncertainty, and emotional risk. I watched the videos of the lectures as a part of getting ready for this sermon. Now, in one of the later lectures, she said something that I really wished I had heard before I wrote the title and that, you know, that little blurb we put in the newsletter each time. While she was talking about people she has identified through her research who she calls the wholehearted, by which she means people who have embraced and can express their vulnerability and thereby are living more authentic and connected lives, Dr. Brown says that embracing vulnerability doesn't mean never complaining about the bad things that happen in life, the things that hurt. In fact, the wholehearted can complain as much as anyone else. They just do it in a specific and more life-fulfilling way. She says that they piss and moan with perspective. I know, I heard that and I thought, now there's a sermon title, Pissing and Moaning with Perspective, a Unitarian Universalist take on the problem of suffering and evil. Actually, I think she's an Episcopalian or something. Anyway, Dr. Brown goes on to say that while embracing our vulnerability isn't weakness, neither does it mean we'll never have problems make mistakes or suffer. It's recognizing that we will and loving ourselves and other people, not in spite of those things, but because of them. To be alive is to be vulnerable. And yet, we live with cultural norms that favor extreme individualism and a form of self-reliance that can strongly encourage us to attempt to create this kind of sense of a false invincibility. Now, there's a paradox there, though, because cultivating that sense of invincibility can drain our courage for loving and accepting being loved. It can lead to shaming and rob us of the belonging and connection that are at the center of what it means to be fully human. Now, I still struggle with all of this sometimes. In fact, a couple of Sundays ago, I got to teach one of our Sunday morning religious education classes. It was for the kindergarten and first grade 
children. After the lesson, it was a little too cold and rainy to let them go outside and play, so we had to come up with activities for them to do, do indoors. It didn't take very long till a few of them got very bored and decided to turn me into their indoor jungle gym. I found myself under siege by a group of four and five and six-year-olds who were demanding that I play with them by being their climbing, swinging, and seesaw apparatus. I was outnumbered, outmaneuvered, and outlandishly on the verge of experiencing pure joy. If only I would let myself give in to it. You know what? I resisted. Dr. Brown calls this resistance foreboding joy. It's when we won't let ourselves fully experience these joyful moments because we start to project everything that can go wrong. We kind of fear the joy because we know at some point it'll end. We start imagining all the sorrows that might come up instead. It's like we try to ward off the sorrow in our lives by stifling the joy. Has that ever worked? So here's all the foreboding and shaming thoughts I was having. Oh my God, I have to keep them on the carpeted area or one of them will get hurt and it'll be all my fault and the church will get sued and I'll never get to work in Unitarian Universalism ever again. And what will their parents think when they come to pick them up and they they find that they've tackled their Sunday school teacher and have taken over the classroom? And here's my favorite. Good golly, man, you have reverend in front of your name now. You can't be seen acting the fool with a bunch of first graders. I don't know why, but sometimes my shaming thoughts have a British accent. <laughs> Luckily for me, the more I resisted, the more the kids upped the ante. Five- and six-year-olds have a lot more energy and determination than I do. What I discovered was that if I gave in and joined in the fun, they would actually be more likely to accept some parameters like staying on the carpeted area. And it was pure joy. Why do we adults so often experience shame around playfulness? Well, here's another Brene Brown quote. Vulnerability is the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness, but it is also the birthplace of joy and creativity, of belonging and love. I think I went through all of that in a matter of just a few minutes that day. Luckily, though, my back healed by the following weekend, so I was able to go to the 50th anniversary commemorative march in Selma. Now, it's interesting that Research conducted after the 1966 mass shooting here in Austin from the Tower at UT, as well as other research that followed that, found that one of the things that people who commit such crimes tend to have in common is that they weren't allowed to play as children. Some of the other research I looked at said that for we as adults to engage in playful activity is actually one of the most vulnerable things we can do because in our culture we have this this sense of a very strong work ethic and that can shame these types of activities. And also to play, we have to give up a sense of control and propriety. We lose our sense of time and place. And yet, the research also shows that play is one of the ways we get in touch with our deeper 
and more authentic selves. And it's one of the ways that we allow others to see us more deeply. I think one of the many wise things that our senior minister, Meg Barnhouse, has done here at First UU Austin has been to infuse our spirituality and rich religious practice with a sense of fun and playfulness. Now, in addition to that foreboding joy I mentioned earlier, Dr. Brown outlines a number of other ways that we avoid vulnerability and thereby ultimately rob ourselves of living fully. I don't have time to go through all of them here today, but here are a few of the major ones that I suspect you'll probably recognize. Perpetual disappointment. You know the folks who do this. These are the Eeyores of our world, right? Oh, well, best not to get too excited because something's going to go wrong eventually. Always the life of the party. Numbing. Now, this is the ways in which we avoid feeling at all, or at least dull our emotions to the point that they become something unrecognizable. It includes the things we normally think of as potential addictions like alcohol and drugs, but it also includes things like Excessive television, eating, video games, smartphone use, working too much, buying too much, and on and on. After all, remember after the attacks on 9-11, we were all told to go shopping, right? Brown notes that we are the most obese, in debt, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in known human history. We numb. And finally, perfectionism. He calls this the 20-ton shield when it comes to avoiding vulnerability. And of course, perfectionism is a trap because we can never really achieve perfection and therefore it can stifle our natural drives for excellence because even excellent isn't perfect, so why take any risk at all? For me, this is the one that has sometimes become a way of sort of super numbing my emotions. I was the oldest child in my family growing up. Some of you may have heard about the oldest sibling syndrome, wherein under stress we can become over-functioning, something that's very closely related to perfectionism. Especially in anxious situation, over-functioners tend to try to take care of everyone else, and maybe even micromanage a little, kind of know what's best for everyone, which is usually some level of perfection that's impossible. Now, my parents divorced when I was 12, and so I got an especially strong case of the oldest child syndrome. It's something I have to watch out for even now. The other thing that happened after the divorce is that my grandparents on my mom's side became like a second set of parents to me. They helped raise us. We spent almost as much time at their house as we did our own. My grandfather became my father figure, and I pretty much idolized them both. They became role models for me. So when I got the call one day about 17 years ago that my grandfather was in the hospital and it didn't look good, I went into sort of an over-functioner's perfect storm. I didn't stop to cry or grieve or feel anything. I just called up Wayne and started making plans to drive over there and take care of my family. I was going to do this grieving thing perfectly. 
And when we got to the hospital, and he was no longer conscious, so I didn't even get to say goodbye to him. I didn't cry or grieve. I just took care of everyone else. And when the hospital called the next morning and said that he had died, I didn't cry. I got up, got dressed, and started planning and taking care of things. And even when I gave the eulogy at his funeral, I didn't cry. Not at the reception afterwards, not on the drive back home when it was all done, not even after we got back home. I was too busy functioning. And then it was maybe a day later, I couldn't find my glasses, and I thought maybe they had fallen under a seat in the car, so I, I went out to the car to look for them, and I didn't find the glasses, but under one of the seats, I found a map my grandfather had given me. He was a big traveler and big on maps, and he had written his name across the front of it. My grandfather had this odd habit of writing his name on all of his belongings. Someone gave him one of those obnoxious, loud, electronic engraving pens one time. Big mistake. And suddenly, sitting there on the floorboard of the car with no one else left to take care of but me, ran out of ways to avoid it. I started crying. For a while, it, it felt like it might never stop. A friend of mine who's a playwright once had one of his characters, after having lost her family in a car wreck, say, I don't have to cry now. I can cry tomorrow next week or next month or next year because it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop hurting. I guess that's kind of what I've been doing, trying to put off the feeling of the hurt. It doesn't work eventually. But his character was right about one thing. It never does completely stop hurting. We just learn to carry it with us, and I think maybe that's as it should be, because for me, it's also carrying them with us. My grandparents are the people that taught me to have a love of nature. To this day, even though they've both been gone now over 15 years, I'll be out on a nature hike, and I'll see something so beautiful that it fills me with joy, and I'll immediately think, oh, I have to call them and tell them about this, and their old phone number, 409-962-2010, will just pop into my head. And then, of course, I'll remember that I can't. And it still stings. Somehow, though, the thing is that the joy of the experience because of that, is also deeper, greater, more complex. I call it a joy so full that it is an aching joy. That's opposed to that foreboding joy I was talking about earlier. Writer and poet Khalil Gibran said it like this, 
the deeper the sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. That's why numbing robs us of living fully. That's the reason to seek lives of vulnerability and authenticity if we refuse to allow the joy, to, uh, the sorrow to carve into our being, we will also never experience the fullness of that aching joy. The thing is, though, living vulnerably is hard, especially when we live in a culture that often values the opposite. So if you work for a high-powered law firm or one of those cutthroat corporate offices, I don't recommend you start trying vulnerability there to start with. But I do think we can start it in our personal lives, with our families and our friends. And I think we can create in this church a space where we can bring our vulnerabilities and our whole selves, and that eventually, maybe that does spread out into those tougher more difficult environments. Now, to do this, I think we have to understand not only what expressing vulnerability is, as I've been talking about, but also we have to know what it is not. It's not sympathy seeking or expressing every thought that comes into our heads. It's not expressing our feelings in a way that is harmful or shaming to others. It's not monitoring every conversation or lurking on email lists, online groups, or at the back of meetings just looking for something to be hurt or offended by. That's not practicing vulnerability, it's just drama trolling. So I think maybe we start by being willing to ask for the space to be vulnerable and by being willing to risk it to reach out and say, my son is in the hospital and I could really use some help, or I just got that promotion I've been wanting at work and I, I want to tell people how happy I am about it without feeling like I'm bragging, and I'm also terrified because I'm not sure I'm up to it and I don't have any other, other place to bring this. In our self-reliant culture, I think sometimes we don't ask for help even in our churches. I think though that in this congregation we are creating a place where we can practice living authentically, a place where we're allowed to be vulnerable and imperfect and to make mistakes and be forgiven for them rather than shamed for them, a place where we are courageous enough for empathy to thrive, a place where we sometimes play with the spontaneity and abandon of children, a place where we love and accept being love and radiate that love out into our world. I think we can create a space where life's hollowed sorrows and aching joys can be sung into the rafters and held by beloved community. What if we make that church? In our increasingly individualistic, disengaged, and power-centered world, wouldn't creating the church of sacred vulnerability be subversive?
We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. May your days be filled with peace. May your spirit overflow with boundless love. Grounded in that love, may your courage rise up and embrace uncertainty and vulnerability. May you be blessed. May you bless the lives of others. Go in peace. Go knowing that a part of this place and this beloved community travel with you until next we are together again. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.